Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm here with Rusana Novikova. Uh, Margaret should be back, I think, if everything works out well, maybe the beginning of September. Uh, so the and we'll, when she comes back, I think we'll have her tell us everything she's been up to the last month or so. Uh, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB table of ranks who give monthly contributions to help support the podcast and keep it going. Uh, give my co-hosts a bit of cash. So if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that patron button and join the table of ranks. Well, Rosanna, we have a, a very good interview about a very present topic, the the memory of World War II uh, in the Soviet Union, but also we, we talk a bit about Russia as well, contemporary Russia. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Jonathan Brunstead is Assistant Professor of History at Texas A&M University. He's the author of The Soviet Myth of World War II, Patriotic Memory and the Russian Question in the USSR, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Jonathan Brunstead. So Jonathan, it's really nice to talk to you. And you have this book, The Soviet Myth of World War II, Patriotic Memory and the Russian Question in the USSR. And, you know, the first thing that struck me is this is such a politically fraught subject. Even it's like today, especially World War II memory, how it's represented, how it's understood, is a is a constant object of really incredibly passionate debate. So I'm just curious, like, what made you want to jump into all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I've never actually been a big World War II buff or anything like that. Uh, what I've always been interested in, though, is kind of how societies represent or embellish uh, past wars for, you know, present, often political purposes. Um, actually, when I was an undergrad, uh, I was far more interested in the ancient world, and I had kind of intended to become to go to grad school and study ancient history at the at the PhD level. And the thing I was really interested in, you know, as, as an undergrad was this idea of or looking at how sort of past wars for the ancient Greeks were mythologized. And w one of the things that came out of that is this idea of something called Panhellenism. So how these wars or their later representations often tried to uh, create a shared sense of Greek identity, a Greek sense of identity that superseded the various city-states like Athens and Sparta and so on. I actually came to Russian and Soviet history quite late. I was a senior in college and a Russian scholar uh, who came had in fact taken the whole sequence of Russian history at my university. And then my senior year, uh, we got a very prominent new Russian scholar uh, who came and, and I was able to audit his class because uh, I'd already taken it uh, officially under another professor. So I audited his class for lack of a better description. It, it totally blew my mind. Uh, completely, uh, uh, I came away. So Sean, you'll be interested in this. And I was an undergrad at UCLA and professor who arrived my senior year was Arch Getty, uh, your advisor. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, so you're, I'm sure familiar with his undergraduate, you know, Soviet history survey. Yes, I took yeah. it as well. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, it's he's an amazing teacher. Uh, but it, the thing that I really took away from it was how shaped by the Cold War my understanding of the Soviet Union had been. Uh, and also how comprehensible from a historical perspective the Soviet Union actually is. You know, so things like the terror, which in my mind, and I'm not, as a scholar today, I'm not really proud that this was my view, but, you know, oh, you know, I could say Stalin was, maybe he was insane, or maybe he was crazy, or something like this. You, you find all sorts of reasons uh, uh, that you can sort of, you know, deploy your Cold War biases to sort of write off trying to understand the Soviet Union on its own terms and simply uh, demonizing it. Uh, and as a kid growing up in the 1980s, really shaped by the Cold War. I was actually born, I was from originally in Southern California, but I grew up in, I went to high school in Northern Arizona. And uh, I, you know, once described it as kind of, it's kind of like the town you see in the 1980s movie, Red Dawn, you know, and Red Dawn was kind of, it was like a documentary for us. You know, this is something that could really happen. I thought the Soviet Union was above all things uh, uh, concerned with destroying the American way of life, socialism in all of its manifestations or was an intrinsic evil you know, uh, and all of this. And, you know, I, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, a lot of these ideas were still perpetuated to me in high school. Uh, and I never really uh, had those challenged, even in my, uh, you know, when I took Russian history uh, before Arch Getty's class, his class, every single lecture just completely obliterated my, my, my Cold War biases as, as he'll be, he'll be really proud to oh, hear that's that. Good. I yeah. To say. yeah. I actually, you know, we didn't have a really a personal relationship, but I saw him in Moscow when I was doing my dissertation research and, uh, he, you know, he was very kind uh, to me and everything. And he just, he had a vague memory of me as this, you know, this punk who would ride my skateboard to class, you know, or it's so, so it's almost cringy, you know, I'm picturing myself like I was probably wearing like a puka shell necklace or something like this. Like, I'm so embarrassed. But so, so, uh, uh, but yeah, his class really just uh, blew my mind. And it was precisely because it really challenged my Cold War perceptions that I chose to do pursue Soviet and modern Russian history in graduate school. And so for someone who's interested in war and how wars are represented studying the Soviet Union, World War II really uh, seemed like a natural place to look. Did you, was there something about, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, we can share this memory, different memories of being in Arches class, but was there something about the war that you learned that struck you? Yes, yes. Uh, and again, somebody who had taken the whole sequence of Russian history I don't know why this didn't really uh, make an impact on me then, but in Arch's class, he uh, really he sort of uh, uh, contextualized how important the Eastern Front was in World War II. How you know th the main theater of the war was really this in Europe at least was this Soviet German uh, confrontation on the East. Of course, like my students today. Going in, I thought, oh, you know, well, really, the main event of the war is June 1944, cross-channel invasion. Uh, Arch's class just, you know, put that idea to rest. I mean, really, this was a war between, you know, Hitler referred to the Eastern Front as his front. You know, France, uh, the Atlantic Wall was his rear. Uh, you know, something like 260 of the crack divisions were in the West, where, uh, you know, a dozen were, excuse me, in the East, there were maybe a few dozen were in the West. I mean, it, it just these, and the statistics of Soviet losses, you know, 27 million. Soviet citizens died. This stuff really was hammered home in that class. Uh, and so it, it was, yeah, it was uh, my interest in World War II really uh, and the way that's sort of been politicized and things uh, through the Cold War uh, from a Western perspective. 
uh, that really was hit uh, hammered home in that class and, and made an indelible impression on me. But, you know, I have to say, again, going back to this issue of the fact that it is so fraught, passionate, emotional, political discussion, you know, that, that's all nice and dandy. You were interested, but you could have also just like not wanted to touch it with a stick, right? <laughs> did that did did the fact that you were entering such a like a, a, a subject matter that is so controversial like concern you? Was that on the brain, or you just kind of push? You're like, oh, I'm a scholar. That doesn't you know matter to me. Oh, that's definitely not. That was definitely not my attitude. How is this book going to be received in Russia, for example? Talking about, you know, uh, this wasn't my title. The publisher chose the title of the Soviet myth of World War II, although that's a phrase I use a lot. Uh, how is this going to be read by Russian audiences? Uh, and, you know, they're, they're going to say, oh, what is this American talking about? Talking about our war victory as a myth, you know? Uh, and so one thing I make very clear in the introduction is that th this is not a... Uh, myth in terms of it's not meant to imply falsity or anything like that. I use myth in a sociological sense, really, to uh, uh, d describe the uh, identity shaping features of this uh, sort of collective uh, story uh, about the war. And so the way it you know plays a role in the society in society. And so it's neither good nor bad. And anything I don't mean any value judgment there. It's uh, it's really I'm approaching this as you know we all societies have war myths, right? All society has have, have foundational myths. I'm approaching it in this perspective. I and but to answer your question, Sean, yes, I had this inkling that this you know especially after 2014. When I knew the book's uh, uh, publication was sort of, you know, in sight or years away still, but in sight, yeah, I, I thought about it, but I just told myself, you know, if I dwell on this stuff, I'm never going to get this this thing done. So, so I put blinders on and just finished it, and sort of now I'm, you know, you know, seeing, you know, some people saying, oh, what does he mean, myth? What does he mean, myth? Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's been received uh, as I intended it. Well, even though it's a very fraught subject, I'm sure that a lot of Russian people would be happy to hear <laughs> that in Archgetty's class, your pr perspective changed so dramatically. I feel like I, I'm having these conversations way too often because as someone who lived in the States, you know, people just want to engage in those kinds of debates about who really won the war. Oh, absolutely. And Rusana, well, what, one of the interesting things about that, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but, it, at, you know, in in a classroom setting, you know, when you're talking to, you know, at least at Texas A&M, when you're talking to these undergrad students, uh, a lot of them, you know, military, it's a great sort of aha moment that students have when we just go over the sheer numbers uh, involved on the Eastern Front. And so in, in a sense, I almost appreciate the uh, I don't know, the ignorance of my students coming in, it, it just is, it's a powerful moment in the classroom. You know, it's one that I experienced myself, but I absolutely take your point. It's something you confront a lot in the States. So I wanted to ask a question that is perhaps central to your book. Um, what is the Russian question for perhaps some of our listeners who are not so familiar with Russian history and politics? Right. So in the context in which I use it, which really follows Terry Martin, uh, it's the place of the Russian people and their history and culture within a larger supranational uh, uh, state. Right. So in the Russian imperial era, you know, the, there was a question about what is the place of the Russian people. And, you know, so in the 19th century, there's a question about how Russian should the 
uh, royal family be, right? How Russian should the uh, czarist regime be? Because after all, this is a multinational polity. This question plays a major role, of course, in, in the Soviet Union as well. Uh, this was a supranational entity that presented itself as a renunciation of the old in, in imperial order, right? So, and it was a Marxist-Leninist uh, society as well, right? A, a revolutionary society. So all of these factors made the Russian question really important. What is the role, for example, of, you know, the Russian national poet Pushkin, right, in Soviet society, in this Marxist-Leninist society? And the early Bolsheviks were quite... Uh, uh, I guess, anxious about, you know, what role are the Russians going to play? So, you know, and probably many of your listeners know this, uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks in the early days of the Soviet Union actually positively discriminated uh, against uh, uh, Russians, you know, at an institutional level. Uh, the Bolsheviks denied the Russian people their own Communist Party, their own Academy of Sciences and State Security Service and, and all that. Uh, and while this encouraged Russians to, to more closely identify with kind of central all-union institutions and thus territorially with the USSR as a whole, the original objective was really to hamstring Russian uh, uh, cultural nationalism, which both Lenin and Stalin initially identified uh, as the greater threat than the kind of quote-unquote local nationalisms uh, of non-Russian peoples. Uh, but this Russian question really never goes away. And of course, Stalin... Uh, begins tinkering with it in the 1930s and begins introducing select elements of the Russian past and culture uh, into Soviet propaganda. Uh, and this is really elevated to new heights during World War II, right? So the Second World War is cast as a great patriotic war, which, you know, evokes the original patriotic war of 1812 against Napoleon. Uh, in November 1941, of course, Stalin gives this famous great ancestor speech in which he on Red Square, he calls on the Soviet people to find inspiration in such pre-revolutionary figures as Alexander Nevsky, Dmitry Donskoy, you know, Kutuzov, and, and so on. And, and of course, during the war, the Russian Orthodox Church is, is partly uh, restored, Comintern is, is shut down. And so my book really takes as its point of departure this Russian question as it crystallized amid this uh, unprecedented war and ultimately uh, victory. You know, the, as as you say, this question of where the Russians fit in a multi-ethnic empire has been a long-standing one that continues to the present. I mean, you you kind of hint at this at the end of the book around the war that this place of the Russians is still a, you know, or, and or the place of the non-Russians, I should say, is is how do you how do you fit this into a, a multi-ethnic struggle? So this problem is articulated by Stalin, right, in his very famous speech. Um, a toast, I should say, in May 1945, where he says, and I quote, I would like to raise a toast to the health of our Soviet people and, most of all, the Russian people. Why is this line so crucial uh, to initiate this, you know, and in the initial formation of the war myth? Yeah, well, the toast, Stalin's toast uh, to, to the Russian people, it's crucial for a number of reasons. I mean, the toast seemed to offer an unambiguous confirmation from Stalin himself that the most important factor leading to victory was the Russian people and all that implies, you know, uh, like their history of military triumphs and, and so on. Now, this came after years of a kind of muddled and often contradictory wartime propaganda. And during the war, you know, there, there were actual debates about what is the meaning of the war? What is, you know, especially when from 1943, when victory 
became more and more certain. There were discussions about what allowed us to withstand this invasion and what is allowing us to eventually achieve victory. One of the factors was this, you know, Russian, the Russian pedigree, the Russian people and all of this. There were others, though, you know, um, and I say contradictory. I mean, you have the Orthodox Church issuing uh, sort of pro patriotic pro uh, uh, propaganda. But you also have, uh, you know, the internationalism, the, at least the Soviet internationalism, this idea of a kind of cross-ethnic brotherhood of people. This idea never goes away either. They also invoked Lenin, the cult of Lenin, right? And the revolution as other patriotic themes. So there's a lot of tensions within these wartime patriotic themes. By announcing, you know, this was published in Pravda on the next day, uh, by announcing that the Russian people had been the decisive force, it seemed to offer an unambiguous assertion that the Russian people played the dominant role in the war. So that's why it's significant. Now, in the sort of what I would arguably the dominant historiographical line has been to say that this really, you know, captured the essence of Soviet war memory uh, after 1945. And, I, you know, I've seen some people actually make reference to this as a kind of shorthand, Stalin's toast, for how the war was represented from 1945 all the way to 1991, right? That this was the final statement on the war. And what I argue instead, in fact, the, the toast in the Soviet Union is really significant, uh, at least in, in the center and in the Russian, Feder uh, Russian uh, Republic, for about two years, between 1945 through 1947. After this, the toast actually disappears from Pravda commemorative articles uh, for Victory Day. The toast just kind of disappears uh, from ce central publications. You still, of course, have hardcore Russophiles uh, and actually a lot of activity in non-Russian uh, republics uh, where the Stalin's toast is still invoked uh, in Victory Day celebrations. But in the center, it largely disappears. Uh, and, it, you know, Stalin, it, it, occasionally you'll see it uh, in the center. But what I'm arguing here for the Stalin period is that there were actually competing ideas about what caused victory uh, in official uh, discourse during these years. Um, so, but why would this be? Um, well, yeah, like, why didn't the leadership just embrace this Russo-centric understanding of the war that Stalin had indicated? Well, I argue that one of the factors is the Cold War's escalation. I've looked at sort of internal uh, agitprop uh, reports that get increasingly threatened by Western explanations for victory, right? So this is at the same time that the United States and France and other countries are, you know, sort of writing the histories of the war and explaining victory. And they detected that, in, especially in, in American circles, there was an, uh, a reliance on this argument that the Soviet Union won in spite of the Communist Party, in spite of uh, uh, ideology. Uh, and they won because they drew on something that was frowned upon in Soviet uh, political culture, which is Russia's martial traditions or General Winter, right? The climactic conditions of Russia, you know, this kind of primordial force. So this is the explanation being ad advanced in the West. And by the way, the people making this explanation are former, uh, 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 are, are, these are based on the diaries, uh, or actually former not Nazi, uh, former Wehrmacht uh, generals, right? So, so within the U.S. Army, after the war, there was the Halder group, after Franz Halder, and they were relying on the German interpretation of why the Soviets won. And this made sense in the context of the Cold War, right? We don't want to acknowledge, uh, you know, the effect of mobilization of the Soviet people or the fact that any of them actually fought for the revolution or for uh, socialism, right? And so the, the Soviet censors were 
aware of this and very sensitive to it. And so they started uh, diversifying their propaganda about the war uh, because after all, saying that, yes, it was the Russian people, it was this lineage that dates back to Alexander Nevsky and Dmitry Donskoy, this only undermined their point. Nobody in America disagreed with that, right? Nobody disagreed that it was the Russian people and their traditions and, you know, their almost their bar- the barbaric tenacity, you know. Uh, this is the argument. And so, so- I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I hadn't thought of this before, but the relationship between the war's memory and the Cold War, I never actually thought of how intertwined they are and to the point where e- even today with the so-called new Cold War, the World War II is back in a variety of ways, right? Like, you know, you hear about Lend-Lease you hear about you know the way the world was divided. You, of course, there's the discourse of appeasement and all of this stuff. But I didn't realize that right from the get go, <laughs> the how the war is narrated and understood is pivotal to the Cold War. Right, and this begins precisely. So you can track these sort of shifts. Uh, so where this the, the war's memory is diversified in the Soviet Union, you can track this with the outbreak of the Cold War, as it with every escalation you see a kind of shift going on. So I'll just give you an example of uh, another sort of thing that happened here. So, so you have this famous poster, right? And it's of a, uh, a capitalist, you know, an, an imperialist holding a, an atomic bomb. Uh, and he's top-hatted and everything. And he's looking up at this Soviet Red Army uh, veteran. And the Red Army veteran is chiding this capitalist imperialist with an atomic bomb. Uh, and he's holding a history of the Great Patriotic War. Right. And at the top of the poster, it says, Nebalui, uh, right? Like, don't horse around or, you know, th- th- don't fool around with this, you know, weapon of mass destruction or war, or we'll be forced to do to you what we did to Hitler. So on the Soviet side, there's a, uh, a- an almost equation of, a- as the Cold War picks up, of the United States, of the capitalist uh, system uh, with, uh, you know, with uh, fascism, right? And so after all, you know, extreme capitalist imperialism is what lead what facilitates ca- uh, fascism and so there was an equation there now in the west we're doing the same thing to the soviets uh, the, uh from the american side we're essentially equate you know under the rubric of totalitarianism we're equating stalinism and the soviet union with nazism and uh and hitler's uh regime the uh, nazi germany so there's a similar equation going on both sides which all hinge on w- interpretations of world war ii right so world war ii is being deployed on both, uh, both sides to wage a uh, cold war. You you mentioned earlier that the discourse on war has changed dramatically over the years from post-war years, you know, up till today. And I'm curious to hear more about the changes in the commemoration of the war itself. I know how it happens today <laughs> firsthand. Um and but I just realized that I don't know anything about how the war was commemorated right after Stalin's death or, you know, in the Stalin's final years. Could you tell us a little more about that? You know, it's long been argued that after Victory Day in 1947, which was the last time until the 1960s that the Soviet people celebrated Victory Day as a non-working holiday. So they'd get the day off work. Um, and so it's long been argued that this is one sign that under Stalin, at least from 19, after these initial two years, uh, under Stalin, the war was kind of hushed up, right? There was too much potentially damaging, you know, uh, 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 
material from, from the war itself. And so the idea was we're going to sort of have a silence regarding the war. And then and suddenly this war cult appears in the 1960s. Uh, in fact, what I found out, it, you know, it, it's not that they stopped commemorating the war during the Stalin's uh, last uh, years. Uh, what it is, they channeled the war's commemoration into uh, labor mobilization, into waging the Cold War. And so, for example, uh, yes, Soviet citizens went back to work on Victory Day in 1948 uh, until 1965. But what were they doing on Victory Day in the factory or in the workplace? It was celebrating Victory Day, right? So, and they would do this through socialist competition. So they'd have uh, rallies, they'd have uh, you know, who can, uh, you know, I've got one uh, report from a chocolate maker, a chocolate, a, a candy maker, and he's going to, you know, outdo the amount of candy he produces uh, in celebration of the defeat of Germany. And so it's really this rhetoric of celebration and commemoration is really channeled into the workplace as part of labor mobilization to get the economy on track. And it's also channeled into the waging of, of Cold War. So if you actually look at the commemorations, uh, commemorative articles, but also, you know, some of the uh, war monuments that, that were being planned at this time. Uh, most of them are, are never see the light of day, but there's a huge sort of discourse about creating monuments, victory monuments uh, during this period as well. So what I argue, in fact, the rhetoric of commemoration and celebration was ubiquitous under, uh, St during Stalin's, uh, during late Stalinism, you know, 1945 to 1953. It was just, it just looked quite different. It was channeled into the workplace and its message really revolved around the Cold War. Uh, in addition, the, the other important thing during these years is that Stalin increasingly took center stage as the source of victory. And you can just look at, you know, in 1949, the film Ball of Berlin, it ends with Stalin descending stairs, you know, in, in Berlin to all these, you know, not, not just Soviet soldiers, uh, multinational coterie of Soviet soldiers, but also, you know, Frenchmen, you know, English uh, citizens, American uh, former POWs, they're all greeting Stalin. And so Stalin's role plays a, a magnifies uh, a, a, over the course of the, this period in, in commemorations. Let me let me ask about uh, Stalin here because does Stalin is it is he configured? I mean, it could be both, of course, but is he configured as the war is won because of Stalin as a person, or does Stalin embody the nation? Like you know, in this old notion of the king having two bodies, it was much more uh, symbolic. Kind of thing. I mean, you could say it was both, right? So, yeah, Stalin's genius, his foresight during the 1930s. I mean, he was the one who initiated uh, uh, the, you know, the revolution from above and you know, rapid industrialization of the country. Uh, you know, all of these things are owed to Stalin's foresight. So, in that sense, you could and his leadership, right? He was Generalissimus Stalin after the war. Uh, and so, yes, you could attribute this to Stalin the man, but also Stalin in sort of, you know, iconography, for example, in late Stalinist propaganda, uh, Stalin's connection to the war, but also to the nation is uh, magnified as well. And so you have, you know, by 1950, 51, you have posters of Stalin, you know, war, you have posters commemorating victory in the war. And at the very top is Stalin in his white uh, Generalissimo uh, uniform. And beneath Stalin, you have this multinational uh, Soviet people. And so Stalin, kind, in a way, came to embody victory itself. And so any sort of tensions or contradictory narratives of the war from, uh, you know, I'd say from 1951, 52, 53, during these final years, 
any of these contradictions between these competing messages were really reconciled by the person, by the figure, by the image of Stalin in uh, commemorative iconography. In, in the effort to, you know, represent, you know, back to this question of where the Russian people lie in, by virtue of that, where did the non-Russian people lie in this? Did they did they ever utilize Stalin's Georgianness as representative of the multi-ethnic aspect of the war and the and the Soviet nation? You know, it's been uh, our Eric Scott, for example, uh, uh, I believe, has talked about how uh, Stalin's uh, Georgianness uh, was a factor in his toast, right? Uh, in, in toast to the Russian people, and uh, you know, uh, he argues, for example, that it was his Georgianness that allowed him to talk about the Russian people that way, from a sort of, uh, I guess, a position of distance from the Russian people, right? Uh, it was precisely his Georgianness that allowed him to do this because if a Russian, an ethnic Russian did this, an ethnic Russian Communist Party leader did this, it would be Russian chauvinism, right? But what I found, though, is that people continued to cite this toast, you know, high-ranking leaders uh, like Georgi Popov, the head of the Moscow Party, uh, continued to cite the toast, even if they were Russian as, as could be. Uh, so in my view, it wasn't his Georgianness that, that gave him that sort of distance to, to talk about the Russian people as a kind of distinct entity. Uh, it was his status as the embodiment almost of the state, right? So it was that that gave him that distance. In my reading, it wasn't, it was not his Georgianness, although I think that did play a role maybe uh, before the war and during the war. But in, in these commemorations, no, Stalin was higher than any nation, including the Georgians. I had been interested in things Russian all my life and got a master's degree in Russian area studies. 20th of June, 1968. In April, May of this year, Teddy Rowe, born in 1934, is suspected of involvement in American intelligence visited the Soviet Union as an American tourist. Teddy Rowe visited every Soviet republic in the spring of 1968, and he kept a meticulous diary of his trip. But so did the KGB. Foreign tourists who did something forbidden in the USSR or simply behaved suspiciously, uh, this is not uncommon in the KGB archives. You would be tailed on the street there will be a breaking into your room and you will see that somebody broke into your room. And that will be like 95% of what happens. It's just trying to make you feel uncomfortable. The people were getting into my diary and into my suitcase. And so I printed a, a note to them in capital letters. If you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. My name is Teddy. First name Teddy, last name Rowe. Subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Once Stalin dies, of course, we have de-Stalinization and the thaw under Khrushchev, and they undergo a shift in how the war is commemorated. And... Khrushchev proposes something called the doctrine of the Soviet people. What, what is that? So this was a way of reconciling, and this is how I see it, reconciling these competing sort of Russocentric 
and what I would call a pan-Soviet version of the war narrative, right? So both of these versions of the war narrative were fairly dominant under Stalin. When Stalin Stalin dies, um, there was actually an, an initial attempt to start creating something like like you know what the war cult we would see under Brezhnev. This happens almost immediately. So there's that you know in 1955 they're calling for a nationwide you know a union wide network of war memorials and uh, uh, dropping making Victory Day once again a non working holiday instead of a working holiday. All of this uh, is being discussed already in 1955. However, there, the leadership faced several obstacles. One of those obstacles was the question of Stalin. How do we de-Stalinize the war, right? And so this plays a bigger role after 1956 with the secret speech and everything and really comes to a head by 1961. How do we de-Stalinize the war? One of the issues that came up with de-Stalinizing the war was, well, if we're going to de-Stalinize the war, what are we going to do with all this Russo-centric rhetoric, right? Like Stalin's toast or Stalin's you know, appeal to the great ancestors. And it was decided uh, gradually over time through a series of a bunch of commissions, uh, for example, to write a new history of the war, all these things. It was decided uh, that we're going to get rid of all of that. We're going we're gonna, to you know, conflate that with the excesses of Stalin's personality cult. And we're going to call it Russian chauvinism. Uh, and it became antithetical to the nature of the war's commemoration. Right. So de-Stalinization essentially discredits the Russo-centric war narrative. So what happens after this is, well, there's a backlash and, uh, you know, Russophiles, uh, people who saw Stalin as a kind of defender of Russian national uh, identity and things like this, they uh, they react against harshly against uh, uh, Khrushchev's policy here. And so the doctrine of the Soviet people was a way of, you know, sort of uh, uh, reconciling the, the, these tensions. And I, this is something I could talk about in a second, but uh, uh, essentially... Uh, the war becomes this pan-Soviet uh, uh, sole narrative. And at the same time, narratives of you know, Russian historical greatness and Russian martial greatness, these are confined to pre-revolutionary celebrations and early uh, Soviet modernization narratives. So there's still a Russian leadership theme there. But the war really becomes uh, the centerpiece of this Soviet people, right? And that it was very important that any of the sources of the victory of the war date from 1917 on. Nothing before the revolution uh, was invoked as part of this uh, Soviet people doctrine. So it was a way of channeling Russocentrism in one direction away from the war and uh, promoting this pan-Sovietism ideal uh, in, in the war uh, commemoration itself. So I have a follow-up question. I'm really curious to hear more about the tension between the Russo-centric and Soviet, or we might say internationalist tendencies in the war cult, and how this tension was dealt with in ethnic republics specifically. Right. Uh, this is a very important question. Uh, I, in a sense, the republics were granted more leeway uh, to interpret the war. So... Uh, you know, after Stalin, central commemorations, as we said, hewed to this pan-Soviet interpretation. Uh, but the republics could still embrace the Russo-centric narrative of the Stalin years, obviously with Stalin's role completely excised, right? So Stalin was no longer an acceptable uh, source of victory. Um, and so, so they could embrace Russian leadership, for example, if they wanted to. Uh, and however, many chose not to. 
many chose to embrace this pan-Soviet narrative because it seemed to fit, uh, you know, an idea that, you know, Kazakhs and Russians fought side by side uh, during the war rather than under the leadership or tutelage of the Russian elder brother. So many republics opted for this more pan-Soviet version. But you get a lot of frequent moments of this Russo-centric narrative popping up uh, more commonly in the republics. Part of this is because you have local party organizations that are trying to convince the center, convince Moscow that, look, we're not, you know, resistant to uh, Russian leadership. You know, we accept Russian leadership. Uh, uh, but then you have, but, and it was, you know, the idea, the, you know, m- most scholarship would say this is how the war narrative always functioned. But you find a lot of uh, diversity. So you find some republics in some eras just completely getting away with any Russian leadership. Uh, notion uh, from their commemorations. What you can't have in the republics is the titular republic, uh, the titular nation being more heroic than the Russians, right? So you couldn't say, for example, oh, the you know, in Tajikistan, for example, you couldn't say, oh, the Tajiks led the Russians to victory. You could not say something like that. You could say the Tajiks alongside the Russians and other Soviet peoples or the Tajiks as, as a Soviet people helped uh, bring about this victory. Uh, or you could say we, we followed our Russian elder brother or first among equal or so on. You could say you could do something like this, but you cannot uh, promote uh, a titular nation above the Russian people. And there's a lot of evidence of this. Just I'll give you one example. Uh, the myth of these 28 Panfilov uh, guardsmen, for example, this was this heroic act in 1941 that was heavily mythologized. Well, they begin commemorating this thing in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, in Moscow, there's a monument there at the site of this engagement at Dubosyakova, uh, outside Moscow. And there, you, there was a conscious uh, attempt to create a monument that was inclusive, right? It was all the people were, were uh, uh, they didn't di- diverse. They were, these were the Soviet people. They weren't diversified by uh, ethnic origin or anything like this. At the exact same time, you have another Pantelov uh, Gar- Garzman monument being erected in, in Kazakhstan. In, in Almaty. And there you have this debate about what to do. Should we uh, celebrate Russian leadership in, in this story or should we have this be a sort of shared Soviet uh, feat? And initially they said, well, it's got to be shared Soviet. We don't want to you know, be like Russian chauvinists here. And then that, was, uh, 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 that idea was dropped and they instead uh, sought to create a monument that had Russian, you know, uh, the Russian leadership. It was, it's actually a pretty cool monument. It's a uh, uh, metal you know, f- fabrication of, the, of a map of the USSR, where the heads of the various uh, representatives of the 15 republics are filling in this map. And out in the front, you have a the Russian political commissar in charge of this unit. And there you have a text below his purported words that Russia is vast and we have nowhere to retreat. Moscow is at, on our, at our backs. That one, that was, that line was included in the Kazakh, uh, Kazakhstan uh, memorial, but not in the uh, uh, central uh, Russian uh, memorial. Um, and so, so you see this, that there's a lot of diversity between what was going on in, in the center and within the Russian Republic and what is going on in, with, uh, in the titular republics. The war, the commemoration of war, the war really hits a high under Brezhnev. You know, this is when you get the war being referred to as a cult of sorts. But, you know, while you were talking, I was a bit thought of um, Amir Weiner's work on World War II and how the war becomes the new foundational event that binds the Soviet nation, 
right? The revolution doesn't still have this. It's, you know, that generation is dying and they're old, et cetera. You get commemoration, you know, but nonetheless, the war becomes the, the, you know, most important, you know, event for the Soviet people. Um, is under Brezhnev, does the war memory and commemoration, is it used to revitalize, say, the say socialist project as as we speak about it? Yes. Yeah, so that actually begins under Khrushchev. Uh, this is it's a complicated story, but and this is something I haven't really mentioned. Uh, under Khrushchev, you know, part of the reason, you know, after Stalin dies, often it's said that under Khrushchev too, they point out, well, Victory Day also remained a working holiday rather than a non-working holiday. So the war must not have been that important under Khrushchev. What happens is under Khrushchev, the war is really yoked to the revolution and this kind of revolutionary teleology. So the revolution really took center stage under Khrushchev uh, as you know the source of victory, right? There would be no victory in the Second World War if not for the revolution and all the re- and you know this is going on at the same time as destalinization. Uh, so there was a shift. Uh, so, so the, but the revolu- the sort of narrative of the war, it all goes back to the revolution. It's even, you know, you could look at Komsomol activities, military patriotic activities uh, that, that were starting at this time. And they would go visit sites of the revolution. You know, they'd visit famous revolutionaries. It wasn't just about the war. It was about this larger Soviet narrative, this larger Soviet meta narrative. What changes is under Brezhnev uh, for, uh, and this is the shift. So Brezhnev really is able to put, to implement a lot of projects that were initiated under Khrushchev. You know, already in 1960, you have a commission exploring ideas about, you know, essentially create what later becomes known as this war cult, right? Uh, And all the, all this momentum and everything is really picked up under Khrushchev is removed from power. Uh, and there, you know, it seems pretty clear that they were delaying to change the holiday from a working to a non-working day to 1965 because it was going to be the 20th anniversary of Victory Day, right? So it was going to be a big milestone celebration. But that decision had already been made uh, in the late 50s and early early 19, very early 1960s. Under Brezhnev, you get this expansion of the war's memory. Uh, there are various reasons this happens in around the early to mid 1960s right so the 20th anniversary is one thing there's transnational pressures that are really coming to a head in the 1960s just like they were uh, in the west so for example uh generational uh conflict and generational changes uh like in the west with the 1960s uh uh also you know the rise of jewish memory uh, uh, another sort of transnational phenomenon, which is happening in the early 1960s, you know, with the, the Auschwitz trials and, and Eichmann and all of this. Uh, there, and, and then you get protests in the West. Uh, and a lot of these protests in the West have to do with memories of the war, the legacies of the war. What were your parent? What were our parents doing during the war? You know, asking this in France or in Germany, this is a big deal. Uh, and so in the Soviet Union, one way to look at it is the war cult, the expansion of the war's official commemoration uh, was really a reaction to these transnational pressures. At the same time, there's also domestic things going on. In the Soviet Union, there's a uh, uh, what I call a crisis of patriotic identity. People are saying, OK, so we all agree that pa- socialist patriotism is important. But what do we rest that patri- patriotism on? Khrushchev wants to get rid of a thousand years of Russian history and just focus on the post-revolutionary era. But that's, you know, so, so we want to embrace, you know, Russian traditions. We want to embrace this thousand year old history. Others say, you know, uh, that that is we are Marxist Leninists and we need to promote a war uh, uh, that that sort of 
you know, is a post-revolutionary, post-1917 uh, uh, phenomenon. And so these, this clash of what is going to be the basis of patriotism comes to a head at this exact time in the early 1960s. The decision uh, that the leadership makes is they say, well, there's a lot of points of overlap between what, say, Russian quasi-nationalists want and what the memory of the Second World War, the commemoration of the Second World War, uh, has to offer. So, for example, the promotion of patriotism, right? The ideas about homeland, motherland, uh, and most importantly, the dissemination of these values among Soviet youth, right? So these are points of overlap between these sort of Russophiles and these uh, more ideologically orthodox-minded uh, leaders that, that were adherents of Khrushchev. The decision is taken uh, to expand the war's commemoration in a way that would maximally overlap with these points of uh, uh, maximally overlap with these uh, points of connection with Russian nationalist priorities. Uh, so that's why the war cold really picks off uh, picks up among Soviet youth. Patriotism is promoted, homeland ideas like this, and so so the expansion of it is really uh, almost a way to steal the thunder of Russian nationalism and other things that are emerging in the 1960s. I have to. I'm really struck by the international dimensions of this, um, and the the transnational nature of the various crises that you're mentioning. Right, generational change. Uh, you know, the the accounting of war crimes, who did what in war, the emergence of the memory of the Holocaust that really takes flight after the Eichmann trial, um, and. And it's weird to realize this now because now that I think about it, uh, the discussion of the war today, and if you particularly if you think of all the legislation the Russian government has passed against falsification, it's really an, a, a really strong international dimension that I didn't realize has a really much longer history. Yeah, speaking of falsification, you know there was a major publication in 1948. Uh, by uh, Soviet ideologists calls, uh, you know, on the falsification of, of <laughs> the history of the Great Patriotic War. Uh, this is, you know, already 1948, and it was a direct response to a uh, publication about uh, uh, Stalin and Hitler's cozy relations, you know, uh, following the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact. Uh, it made a sort of Western argument. Uh, sorry, it was a... a, a uh, apologia. It was a defense against uh, how the war is being presented in the West. Uh, so, so this and this is called falsification of history. And so, this has a very early uh, origin, indeed. This international context, and I would say the international context is there throughout. Uh, so, in my book, I talk about the 1970s. You have uh, some of the biggest American propagandists. This is how they're called. Uh, Western propagandists, this is how they're called in Soviet uh, uh, reports, uh, include, uh, for example, historians like Richard Pipes, right? And so they, they target Richard Pipes as a you know, Western ideologue uh, uh, and uh, one way to counter. And what, what was Pipes saying? Well, Pipes was, uh, and others, uh, major uh, Western historians of Russia, were arguing you know, that there are a lot of uh, Russian imperialist uh, tendencies going on in the Soviet Union. So, you know, and sometimes they would cite the war. They'd say, look at Stal uh, Stalinist propaganda during the war. Look at all these, in you know, invocations of the Russian past and all this stuff. And so uh, a lot of these primers that were uh, published in the first years after the war to counter this, or excuse me, and I'm talking about the 70s now, uh, uh, it, this discourse about, okay, we need to counter what Pipes is saying that we're a Russian empire. Uh, how do we do our neo-Russian empire or something like that? How do we do that? Well, let's promote the war. Uh, you know, look at the war. What are we talking about that's Russian nationalist or imperialist in the war? We're not. We're a Soviet people. We were born of the revolution. Uh, 
right? Not a thousand years ago uh, as some sort of primordial uh, sort of Slavic or Russian uh, entity. This is not who we are. And the main instrument for hammering home this message on an international level was the World War II victory narrative. I keep coming back to the Russian question. I don't know, maybe that Maybe because I'm dealing with it in my own research project, maybe because we talked about it with Fabrizio a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, so with the rise of Russian nationalism in the 1980s, I'm really curious to know how did these people treat the war and its memory? So, you know, the Russian nationalism really uh, achieves a kind of peak in the late 1960s uh, already uh, in the Soviet Union. And so there's a, you know, a decades uh, long tradition here of figures that, that we would call uh, uh, pro-Soviet Russian nationalists, right? So people who supported the Soviet project as a sort of Russian uh, great power project, uh, but they, you know, tr wanted to stay in the regime's good graces. And so they tried to publish within the limits. This group over the course of decades tries to craft and get published uh, something akin to a kind of Russian national version of the war's memory during these years when it was uh, really uh, frowned upon uh, and often uh, just completely suppressed. Uh, and so this project never dies out. It's really heavily suppressed during the 1970s. Uh, in the early 1980s, uh, following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, there's a brief moment. And there's also the anniversary of the Battle of Kulikova Field uh, that took place in 1980. Uh, this became a big sort of nationalist uh, 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 celebration, um, or at least risked becoming that. Uh, I have a section on the book on the celebration of the World War II victory actually plays kind of a counter narrative uh, in that context. But you get a few publications uh, like uh, Vladimir Chivalikin's uh, two-volume uh, uh, historical epic novel, uh, or Memory. And here you get basically an attempt to place the Soviet victory narrative, complete with its internationalist gloss and its sort of uh, post-revolutionary qualities and things like this, within a larger narrative of Russia's historical uh, development. So it, it's a really awkward fit. But you get a few of these publications and you see uh, Russian nationalists trying to fit the narrative, the official Soviet victory narrative, within this larger uh, sort of uh, teleology. And now, of course, this all changes when with, with Glasnost. When Gorbachev comes to power uh, and this effort to sort of uncover the blank spots of Soviet history and all of this, uh, all of these debates within the party leadership, debates among propagandists, ideologists, and, and tensions between sort of nationalist-oriented uh, intellectuals and sort of more orthodox Marxist uh, thinkers, uh, all these tensions uh, and debates break out into the open. And so after 1985, you get open clashes between Russian, uh, Russian nationalist view of the war uh, and an official version of the war, which was promoted by Gorbachev, which was this pan-Soviet uh, myth. And so Gorbachev and the leadership hold on to this pan-Soviet version of the war right up to the end, uh, uh, continually sort of criticizing. Now, they can't suppress it. They don't suppress it. But they criticized the Russian national reading of the war's memory openly. And of course, Gorbachev believed that he would win these debates. Uh, in the end, uh, you know, that the war was kind of a last vestige of a Soviet identity that was uh, falling apart. Uh, but yeah, the, these tensions break out into the open and nationalists take a very clear position that the World War II victory was won by, uh, by uh, Russians uh, primarily uh, or, or Slavs uh, sometimes. And actually, one of the big groups promoting this idea is the nationalist network called Pamyat memory after Chivalikin's novel uh, that came out in, in the 19, early 1980s. 
And finally, you know, going back to the first question about the this subject being so, you know, politically fraught and debates around it incredibly intense that have only intensified in the last decade in Eastern Europe and former Soviet states. And as somebody like yourself who has looked at the Soviet commemoration and all of its various knots and contradictions, what what aspect of the popular discussion of the war's memory annoys you the most? It just makes you cringe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's you know, I, it's long been the idea that Russia today is somehow unique or somehow uh, uh, I don't know uh, uh, unusual in its mythologization of World War II. Okay, uh, as an American, I know that uh, uh, this is not a unique. Uh, uh, thing now, Russia again with this horrible war unfolding before us. I, I don't want to, you know, o- overstate this because the war is obviously being used in a far more pernicious uh, way today uh, than I would say the United States is using its own World War II memory. But uh, one of the things that I think is important to highlight in this current discussion is that the political use of World War II memory is not unique to Russia, and in fact, uh, it's common to sort of senses of national exceptionalism. And uh, we are no different in the United States. And I think looking at uh, uh, the way the Soviet Union tried to grapple with the war, the way it tried to uh, uh, create this kind of commemorative edifice and myth around the war, I think this has a lot of relevance uh, for our own societies uh, 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 today, right? We're, we're, we're able to recognize that, yes, the Soviet people really and Russians today are really buying into not the actual history of the war experience, but rather a shared myth, a shared understanding of that war that, that these people are actively buying into. In this, I think we can all, all recognize something about our own society or, or, or the way our own identities, our own senses of national exceptionalism uh, are created, uh, which is why I think it's a pretty cool thing to study. Uh, it has more relevance to our own society, I think, than many of us uh, realize or would be willing to to admit. Uh, one, one other question that just popped into my head, you know, in, in the commemoration of the war, a lot of it is about primarily about heroes, right? It's about struggle. It's about survival. What did the war memory do with victims? And and here I'm speaking of not only, say, the Soviet civilians and war and, and military who died, but particular victims like Jews or other ethnic groups that were, you know, singled out in terms of violence against them. So in the early post-war years already, you have uh, the Jewish identity of uh, 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 veterans being erased, right, in favor of an idea of a collective sort of Soviet people. So Jews were not really singled out uh, in the war myth, right? They were part of uh, uh, the larger Soviet uh, collective. And you actually see other societies doing this to some extent, uh, you know, maybe in a less pernicious way. You know, in France, for example, after the war, there was this myth promoted that most of France resisted, right? But the major role played by communists was uh, etched out of this, uh, right? And in some, and to some extent, the Jewish experience of the war, you know, it invited questions about collaboration and things like this. So this was all sort of uh, uh, swept under the rug in favor of a larger narrative of French unity and resistance during uh, the Nazi occupation, the German occupation. And to be fair, the, the the memory of Jewish victimhood in the Holocaust really doesn't really take off until the Eichmann trial, at least in the West. Uh, absolutely. 
Right. Absolutely. That, that this is really uh, something that emerges uh, at the very beginning of the 1960s uh, uh, internationally. Uh, right. So the Soviets were not alone in this. Um, you do, though, occasionally get Jewish heroes mentioned uh, in a Soviet textbook by Anna Pankratova, the official Soviet high school uh, his history textbook. It mentioned uh, the, the name of a Jewish hero and continued to do so uh, right through Stalin's death. Uh, but that's, you know, uh, by and large, there was no unique uh, uh, sort of uh, Jewish victimhood accepted in the official Soviet uh, war narrative. That was Jonathan Brunstedt. Jonathan Brunstedt is assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University. He is the author of The Soviet Myth of the World War II, Patriotic Memory and the Russian Question in the USSR, published by Cambridge University Press. All right. Thank you very much, Rusana. So what are some thoughts you had about this interview? Yeah, I found the, the conversation about the myth of the Second World War today the most interesting at the end of the interview. Um, maybe because I'm an anthropologist and so I'm more interested in current events. Um, and I also live in Russia, so I see it every day um, on people's bumpers, in conversations, in demonstrations on May 9th with the immortal regimen. I feel like, I mean, obviously it, it has been used by politicians, by the government, right? In order to achieve whatever goals they, they have. But I also think that in popular memory, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's this point of reference where Soviet people, Russian people overcame this great evil power and they were able to come out of this battle victorious despite immense losses. And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a reminder of this time when we were, when we were strong, when we were great. And if we could overcome that kind of horrible uh, event, we can manage anything. So I think it's kind of used as, a, as this as a point of inspiration, uh, even though, or maybe even more so because it was such a dramatic page of history. It's used to remind people that, well, you know, we've had the we've we've had we've eaten a lot of shit over the past thirty years, and I think uh, a lot of people are ashamed of what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union and how everything disintegrated and nothing works and people leave the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this, there has been this long string of, so to say, losses, right? Where we couldn't uh, manage the, <laughs> we couldn't manage well the situation, right? And so, yeah, for a lot of people, it's just like uh, a counterexample of like, well, yes, we fucked up many times in very recent history, but look at that. Like we managed to do all that. And so, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it certainly is. a. I think it, it functions on that as a point of like, we survived that. We survived the war so we can survive anything. You know, you see this rhetoric even today around like, you know, Russians' willingness to suffer, 
<laughs> right? The war is constantly that reference. Um, but also I think too, um, and this is the, I always felt like in thinking about the contemporary, and this of course goes back to, to a lot of what Jonathan said is with the collapse of the Soviet system, you get the collapse of ideology, right? You get the thing, the collapse of a lot that of institutions and, and other morals and other ethics and that hold society together. Like what is, what is the thing that's going to bind Russian society today? Well, it's not, of course, the revolution that's tabooed, that's gone. Um, the Soviet system is gone. So what is that one great event that we can, we all shared, regardless of difference, is the war experience. And, and then that, of course, raises the, the main question that Jonathan was trying to address. And I'm wondering what you think about this is, well, what is the, what, how, how is the relationship between the Russia, Russian people as an ethnic group and Russia's today, Russian, the Russian Federation's multi-ethnic you know, population, how does the Russian question figure today? And that I, I'm not so sure about, like, how do, how is the, the multi-ethnicity of Russia figured into the war now? I think the war in this case works as a really good tool for uniting people. Because I think, because what I hear from people I talk to in the Far East quite often is that we all all the ethnic groups fought for this victory together. Um, and I know that Jonathan went more into the details <laughs> about it, you know, the first among equals, etc. Um, but I guess like maybe in the in daily conversations that I have with people, they don't really bring those nuances so much. So it's more about, well, the whole country fought however they could. Like, you know, women worked at far factories, uh, Inuit people caught fish that was later shipped to feed the army. Everyone did what they could. And when I worked with indigenous groups in Western Siberia, you wouldn't believe, but they're so proud of their ancestors who fought during the war uh, and maybe who didn't even come back. But it's they would like cite numbers about how many Selkup people were sent to the front. And, you know, this elderly man, he was telling me how he had to start working when he was 10 years old because he was um, fishing and that fish was sent to the, to, to, to feed the army, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So like I said, I think it works as a great uniting tool for the country, at least for, you know, again, not only for politicians, I think for regular people too, they feel uh, pride of being part of this great page in history. And I think that's a really important, I mean, just the way you describe it in terms of its affective power, people's feelings, they have intense emotions, pride, around this and and that's that's the other kind of the the interesting tension that I think doesn't get maybe enough attention when talking about the memory of the war today is that yeah there's a lot of top down 
you know, regulation and trying to structure and discipline how the war is remembered and commemorated. But it also is a very powerful thing from below, right? Here, I mean, just the way you describe it, it's like people, regular people identify and with, you know, their relatives and ancestors who fought and died in the war and the sacrifices they made. Uh, and they feel themselves as part of that, as connected to it, because everyone was affected in their their own way. We sh- we should be very cautious not to kind of take people's words at face value, but we also shouldn't treat them as totally brainwashed and not being able to uh, have and express their genuine feelings. The other thought I had in reference to this issue of like the place of the Russians versus, you know, ethnic minorities, you know, in in many respects, this question of is not unique to Russia, but one of all multi-ethnic or multi-racial societies when it comes to war, right? How do you incorporate the minority within the general, the general narrative of the majority, right? We have this problem in the United States about how do you incorporate, say, African-American soldiers? Um, or I was reading Abdul Razak Gurna's uh, novel, um, Afterlives, which is about uh, German colonial rule over Tanzania, and especially World War I. And I had no idea that World War I was fought in East Africa and the role of like um, Tanzanian and other Africans under colonial rule uh, fighting in the war, both on the side of the Germans and on the side of the British. And it was interesting to me, this revelation reading this novel about, well, how do you include or incorporate, say, those African soldiers within the larger history of World War I or the memory of World War I? So in that respect, like, you know, it, this this question of majority versus minority is is not necessarily, you know, I think it's a persistent one regardless you know, in all sorts of different societies, multi-ethnic and multi-racial societies. Yeah, and another thing, you know, this renewed interest and veneration for Stalin, I think is more about Stalin as kind of like a a timestamp, as a reference point, and not so much about Stalin, the literal historical figure. And... The timestamp that I'm referring to is about that hopeful time during the history of the Soviet Union where people had, like you said, that ideology, that belief that they're uh, building something bigger than their personal lives, that there is this path towards the future that they're going towards, that, that they're trying to, you know, there were all these lofty goals that concerned not only the Soviet Union, but the entire world. And so I feel like that attachment, that uh, pride about Stalin's rule, especially like post-war, maybe like 50s, is more about that general kind of societal mood that like Stalin as a ruler represents, rather than like Stalin as the leader or a real historical uh, persona. Here, I was starting to think of the the memory of the war in Russia, but in general, like the, why it's so present in present day, you know, 
discourse, at least in the West and in former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. It's also because too, you know, you're going to this idea of it providing something larger than us. In our neoliberal age, we're all individualized little entrepreneurs. What is the big, what is the big idea? Right. So I couldn't help think of like, I was thinking about this last night, how nationalism is in many respects a very unsurprising reaction to neo neoliberalization and globalization. And I wonder if the the war has this other function where, you know, because it's binding, it's it's a point of recognizing who's part of the nation and who's not part of the nation. And it's proliferation also functions as a, as a potential antidote to the individualization of, you know, our present day neoliberal selves, right? It gives a, it gives us a larger, it can give people a larger sense of being part of something larger beyond their own individual, you know, daily life. Absolutely. And I see that I see that in Russia with my respondents, I feel like they they do want to go back to I think like a lot of them express warm feelings towards the Soviet past, but they understand that the Soviet uh idea collapsed. It did not deliver, or at least it did not deliver as it promised. And so then they start to kind of like try to figure out, okay, but like what other big ideas are out there that we can like attach ourselves to? And that's how this like strange merges between kind of appreciation of the Soviet past and nationalism emerge. E even though you think like, well, this is counterintuitive, you know, but as we like saw with Limonov too, right? It like perfectly, <laughs> it perfectly, it is, it perfectly lives and, uh, you know, finds support among Russian people today. Well, th thanks. Thanks a lot, Rusana. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. And, and as listeners can hear, like so many, I think so many threads can be pulled from this issue of like the place, the persistent place of World War II and our, you know, collective, collective culture and consciousness. Um, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova. And as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Uh, if you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing it on your various social media platforms, get your friends and family to listen, and also please write a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, this is really helpful to get uh, the word out. Uh, please feel free to drop us a line on Facebook and Twitter or on, on srbpodcast.org and let us know what you think of what we're doing here. And as always, uh, we'd love to have your support. The SRB Podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other educational institutions to keep it completely paid ad-free to listeners. Uh, we don't want to, you know, promote things that we don't like. Um, so please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Until next time, bye. <laughs>